it's just past 18 hours 30 minutes and 18 seconds east african time time for john sibi okumu on wednesday this being wednesday the 21st of june 2023 hamjambo na karibuni hello and welcome eating out can be considered an index of national identity because it reflects various aspects of a country's cultural values, traditions, social dynamics. It can point to culinary heritage. When people dine out, they have the opportunity to explore and appreciate the flavors, ingredients, and culinary traditions <coughs> that have been passed down through generations. To dining etiquette. The level of formality or informality during dining experiences can also reveal attitudes towards hierarchy, respect and hospitality. To social interactions, the way people engage in conversations, the roles of individuals within a group and the importance placed on hospitality and generosity. To food preferences and choices countrywide, influenced by such things as religion and health considerations. And last but not least, to economic factors. In some cultures, eating out may be seen as a luxury or reserved for special occasions, while in others it may be a more common and frequent practice. In this edition, under the thematic hook, Kenya at 60, our conversation will be about the eating out scene since 1963 with a mystery guest who will reveal himself later to be a pivotal and guiding player. Let's hear some answers to the question. Do you invite people to eat out? Jay, huwa unalika watu kwa mankuli mara kwa mara? wanakaribisha watu tukaweza kula pamoja lakini sio kila wakati kwanza na uchumi huu wa sasa huu wa Kenya sasa hivi even myself i don't eat out regularly live alone invite people um it is expensive generally and um, okay nowadays there is something about food i think compromise the quantity is compromised the quality is compromised so uh, uh, yes i do invite people out to eat but not regularly but the little time that we have i believe that we share a lot. And I believe that uh, the African-Kenyan culture, uh, food invitations create a bond between people and society. Of course, if there could be, if there's a need to be, then possibility of them eating regularly is just okay. It's something which is almost coming or being impossible. So when you consider the state of our country, the state of our economy, it's actually devastating. There are some of these people whom even if you invite, they cannot come. Yes, I do in invite people it isn't regularly rarely on occasion because i basically love spending my time alone for the purpose of a specific discussion some line of work uh, some project we can do together it's always much more on a specific issue it's been a lot so besides the eating there's always a specific uh, purpose for that meeting no first of all i might sacrifice for myself but when it comes to others energy is only expensive not really because at this time economy is very tough so ikiwa tumekubaliana tulenje iwe kuna mada mwafaka inayotuleta pale nje 
kwenye mkahawa ili tule kwa pamoja yes friends with the time and please and who that person is you know me you know that i love to cook so i do ends i don't do outs inviting people over rather than going out to eat i wish i had that money if i had that money definitely i'll be inviting people to eat but people invite me to eat Because every time i take someone out in a restaurant within town i have to part with over 1000 shillings so i can't do it daily or weekly it depends on various factors such as personal preferences financial considerations and cultural norms i can't even remember the last time i invited people out probably i would invite people to eat on my birthday only so that means once a year ndugu <laughs> those were young voices as you'll agree uh what do you think well a good variety of uh, opinions um uchuminimbaya so economic reasons to not go and invite people out uh special occasions shared experiences uh all interesting comments there but let me just talk about eating out generally i mean it's it's been something that's been going on for years and years and especially with the mobility of populations eating out uh has become more prevalent uh here in kenya uh is it an african tradition uh no not yet but it is fast becoming one and inviting people is just generally gaining momentum in the society that can afford it Well the thing is it's an important point you raise there Ndugu because this idea the difference is is that dread word capitalism isn't it the idea that you have to pay for something now my links to the theater we have the problem there we keep on saying we gathered round whichever tree and performed but now you're asking people to buy for tickets and people are saying that things are so bad one shouldn't bother to go out and eat with other people so what having been in the industry for so long what do you think draws people to going out in the first place well eating out is a, is an experience it is uh, and and often people will share the cost of eating out and let's not forget that eating out even at a very low level is an is an essential that's why we have so many kiosks that serve very moderately priced food because their uh, workers are away from home um but i think the eating out scene is uh, is not because it fills a biological need of being hungry but it is a shared experience it gives people an opportunity to try different foods that they normally wouldn't do within their own cultural settings and then you don't have to do the washing up either <laughs> indeed well the thing is let's go back to this whole thing of um, i'm interested in kenya as a country because you and i have uh, both traveled the world up and down do you feel that we have the same culture of eating out being accessible to a great number of people because if, if I go to Zanzibar or something and there's a whole sort of wharf full of um, uh, Swahili food but the thing about it is that it's cheap and we're saying 
almost by definition, all the people that I have to spend a thousand bob that in order to eat out, uh, it's a statement of sort of economic status. You have to be rich to eat. Is that too flippant uh, an equation? That's an interesting comment because obviously at the coast, uh, eating out has been a tradition for many, many years, especially, you know, um, during iftar after Ramadan, there's a very big social gathering of eating out and uh, not so commercial historically, but now more so that uh, a lot of the ladies would cook and bring stuff out on the street and it'd be shared, usually by the extended families, but it is a very social occasion. Um, the economic aspect is definitely there. Uh, but what we're seeing in Kenya is a more upwardly mobile middle-class society that has seen the rise in fast food restaurants in the recent past. I'm going to go back to this idea again of not only affordability, but the idea, just before we get into the history, because we've got a lot of time to talk so we can relax, you know, chill, whatever the expression is, uh, th this idea that, again, when I travel, I, when I went to Zimbabwe on a school trip as a teacher, we were told we've got to have uh, sadza, uh, which was a sort of ugali, but it was sort of um, um, lighter in texture, and then we had a braai, there was meat, and although our hosts in this very sort of elitist private school setting, the, the, the hosts were offering the local fare as a kind of badge of national pride. You've got to have this meal. Now, here we are in Kenya. Uh, we won't name names. We won't sort of name and shame because we're not going to do that kind of publicity. But I can go into uh, any kind of condit ndugu and order ugali naskumawiki and there isn't any uh, or it's been introduced slowly so it, in a way as to say we're ashamed of, of our national cuisine I don't think it's a question of being ashamed and I do know that many restaurants do serve ugali and sukumawiki and and it's uh, normally horrid when they do the ugali <laughs> is sort of cooked like a yeah, sort of grind well if it's pre-cooked it's obviously going to be very solid right um, but if it's cooked to order it can be fine but our high end I'm still going to stick to that our, our high end joints do not deliver quote unquote the national uh, staple Okay, um, I think that's changing and has changed to some extent. But again, it's that idea that you're going out to do something different to what you do at home. I think going out to eat is, is so you can experience something that you otherwise wouldn't do at home. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about the Frenchie sort of on the Champs-Élysées with their glasses of wine? They're still going out there's still, you know, this idea, it's a done thing to make life full. Kenyans haven't got there. Is it? Is it because we're a sort of tribal beast and we don't want to go out with that horrid neighbor from the next Kabila? 
No, I think now we're going back in history. You wanted to talk about history. No, we'll get there soon. But, I'm just saying but for now. But the French have been doing it for hundreds of years. Right. So it's an established tradition to go out and share a meal and everything like that and so, drink mm. wine. Whereas in Kenya, uh, I think eating has historically been a family thing and that going out is a re uh, reasonably recent phenomenon. Mm. Mm. And the idea, I guess, that here you um, invite your sort of jami, uh, your relations and your aunties are coming today and the in-laws are coming tomorrow, but it's not actually spreading to other people, the world at large. Yeah, but uh, in the more affluent uh, part of the society, you see big celebrations in public places. So... Mm. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask you one question before our first break. Now, uh, everybody listening to us Ndugu knows this guy sounds like a Mzungu. Uh, I'm wondering whether you come from that um, sort of experience where, as a young child, uh, the ayah, the nanny who looked after you, so you'd be having your sort of custard pie and cream, and then the your nanny would take you across and have a plate of githeri. Was that a memory that is part of your life? When did you start eating uh, indigenous food? God, very perceptive of you. <laughs> Absolutely true, yes. yes. Uh, and it was it was actually really fun to, you know, you've been brought up to eat with a knife and fork and suddenly you could eat with your hands. And uh, mm. um, So what did you eat? We ate uh, sukuma and a bit of githeri and, uh, and ugali. But I guess... Uh, it is a bit of an acquired taste when you've been brought up with spicy, buttery, you know, different different flavors. So uh, it took a bit of time to realize that this is actually quite palatable. Yeah, and I guess perhaps more nutritious and better for your health in, in a consideration. Now that we're, health is a, is, is a preoccupation, it was healthy food by definition. I think we might get to that part sooner or later. <laughs> Indeed. So, time enough for our first break. Thank you very much. Capital FM. Ndugu, um, you may not be a literati like me, but um, there's this uh, wise guy historian from West Africa, Ahmadu Hampatemba, who said that in Africa, because you don't have a uh, didn't have a literary written tradition. For every musée who dies, a uh, library goes up in flames. Now, I think we can be uh, open enough to say that you and I are both wazes. So before you were to go up in flames and you had to look back on your experience of eating out since 1963, are there key moments that you remember as a child growing up? If I just sat back and let you lecture me for a while. What do you remember? I remember that there weren't many opportunities to eat out. Even us Wazungu were not eating out very much. I would say my first eating out memory would be the snow cream parlor where you'd go oh, yes. and grab your ice creams. Which exists to this day. Yeah, and a bit of a plug for snow cream, yes. How about that? Yes. 
And the next one would be going to the drive-in and getting your fish and chips. And that was terribly exciting to be able to eat out and eat your So evoke fish. the idea of the drive-in cinema for those who maybe don't remember. What, what, what was a drive-in? The drive-in cinema on the Thika Road, you'd drive your, your parents would drive you there and you'd be in your pajamas and probably about ready to fall asleep halfway through the movie, but that didn't matter. It was going to go and get your fish and chips and your popcorn and see your friends and run around the car park because that you parked your car, there was the big screen, you had a speaker in the side of your car. It was a crackly old thing. But anyway, it's what you did, and it was more of an experience. Back to that experience of eating out, right? And um, then there was the film, and I think most of us kids fell asleep halfway through. But it was pretty exciting. Mm, onwards. So there's a drive-in. So we're talking. Are we talking? Um, are we talking the sixties, the seventies, the sixties, the sixties, sixties? Yes, exactly. And, and, and you're a, you're a little boy. Yes. Mm. And then. Um, then uh, I guess it was off to boarding school and the terrible food at boarding school that at half term, you just died for something like a steak. <laughs> and if you were lucky, yeah. you were taken to the steakhouse, which is was just around the corner from here. In fact, it uh, it was run by a Greek guy who had amazing garlic sauce and steaks. And eventually he was translocated to make way for the IPS building, right, which is right next door here, I think. Yes. Um, the steakhouse, so, yes. And then, you know, if I think back, what uh, re there, were, there were very few fast food restaurants, uh, except for some of the Indian ones. But as a young boy, I didn't have... So fast food, again, let's go back to explain to those who might not know, Ndugu. Uh, fast food meaning it's... <coughs> produce fast uh, and therefore are we thinking wimpy uh, morphing into Kentucky fried chicken Absolutely. names like that is that fast food wimpy would have been the very first fast food uh, in Kenya mm. and the burgers they served were really wimpy they were <laughs> tiny little skinny burgers yes. and they were obviously by definition cheap so I would say Wimpy would be the first fast food restaurants, and now we have a plethora of, um, you know, pizza restaurants. You could call all the other ones that are, if you want me to mention names, I'll mention names. Let's but, do. do. But, you know, uh, a bit like Java Art Cafe right. that have really exploded across Nairobi in particular and, is, and are beginning to fan out across the country as more and more people can afford to go and do that. Um, but it's it's not so much, you don't really invite people to those kind of restaurants. You do meet them there, and quite often you may pick up the bill, but you often share the bill. Right. Uh, have you got to 2023 all of a sudden? No. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you want to go back to yeah. the uh, restaurants that I remember. Well, there well, was. I, I, let, let, we, we, we talk about shared experience. I go back to things like uh, this idea of the family owned establishment where the, you know, the, 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 the chief um, owner would come around and ask you whether you're enjoying your meal. 
and the idea you could go to the china plate or you could go to laverini's or you could which became marino's and i guess it has a a sort of a morphing into the trattoria basically family owned joints before big capital steps in would you agree that that was a moment in our trajectory and yes and they tended to be ethnic restaurants like the greek restaurant and the italian restaurant the chinese restaurant and the indian restaurants i'm trying to think was there a british restaurant i don't think there was hmm. uh, maybe in the club so but um yes and it was a family business and i do remember milo lavarini uh, very much larger than life um but it became a corporate uh business thereafter probably by the 80s it was more corporates but there were there were some doyens of uh, the restaurant business but again we're talking more of the high end restaurants yeah would you say because we're all very national and nationalistic pride that over the years uh the external takeover of our eating out culture is a kind of invasion which we would sort of fight back against or well, it's all for the good is, we live in a global village <laughs> yes we do live in a global village and they have the power to uh spread their wings across the planet and uh, they have an economy of scale which is hard to fight against they also have a a, a system that can produce quick service food which means you know from the time of ordering to the time of actually getting your food is somewhere under 10 minutes um and and often much faster so um but there has been a a change i would say in the last 10 years to more kenyan foods uh, you know you can talk about mama oliech and you can talk about uh kenyan cafes and tea rooms that are Uh, are certainly springing up and there is a, a although there's no real Kenyan food uh nationally because it's all broken into regional preferences but there is a certain pride of Kenya food that's coming up now I when I go out and I sort of say I fancy myself in the kitchen uh, I say it would be so nice at one point to run a restaurant Uh, an eating out place uh, is it what are the steps that are necessary is just is it possible to sort of find somebody with some meat in a butcher and then go and buy some tomatoes uh is is that and i ask myself sort of mickey mouse questions like what happens to all the food that doesn't get eaten what is the business plan that you one would have to consider to even venture into the eating out business what are the no-nos beware this beware that okay it really depends on the style of restaurant so the more complex uh, the restaurant the harder it is the reason you see the spread of the brands is that if you did not have much expertise you could get a franchise of a pizza restaurant they would run you through how to run it and and all the pitfalls that go with it What is interesting about a restaurant is the margins are very very thin and it's not so much about what you do out front 
It's how you control your costs around the back. And a lot of people will start a restaurant and saying, well, you know, just like you said, I fancy myself as a bit of a chef or my wife's a great cook and we've got these fabulous recipes. And they go into this business and find that life isn't quite that simple uh, and that it's it's a very complicated management structure with very, very fine control of costs. And I could give you an example of a, a, a restaurant where for 100 bob, the restaurant has to take off its uh, VAT, pre presuming they're now VAT, service charge, training levy. There goes 28%, 28 bob straight off. Then you've got your cost of sales, which is somewhere around a third of that. So there's another 30 bob gone. Then you've got your labor costs, and, and it goes on and on. At the end of the day, if you can make 10% on what you're selling, you're doing really well. But you're perceived to be charging a, an unholy amount of money. You want to draw people to this establishment and uh, places that we're going to look to the future. I don't want to preempt our conversation so it doesn't have any kind of structure. But it seems to me, uh, do you just put on uh, an advert saying, come to JSO's for the best food in in town and everybody will flock to it by virtue of your trumpeting your wonderful skills, culinary skills. Is that enough to tell people I'm here, come? No, in a short word. Oh. Um, you're, you know, a bit like you. We're in the restaurant business. You're in show business. Yes. You're doing more than just feeding people. You're entertaining them. You're pandering to their egos sometimes. You know, when people are hosting people, they want to be given the right form of respect. And um, you are going to be judged according to the quality of your last performance. And that performance includes the service, it includes the quality of the food, and it includes uh, the value for money. And that perception of value for money obviously changes according to everybody's ability to pay. So we heard earlier on in the Vox Pop, uh, the quality is not good, the quantity is not enough, the price is not enough. You have to address all these, uh, all these aspects at whatever range you're pitching your restaurant to. Something that's always intrigued me, Ndugu, is that you're coming in sort of like from uh, the Thika Road, you're coming in into town, and all of a sudden you hit Nyama Chomaville, and a whole bunch of guys jump out of the woodwork all wearing white saying, come this way, come this way, come this way. And they're all selling the same product, which is Nyama Choma. So they're all there, but you've got a strip. Uh, and then you, you take that to um, countries like in the Far East, like Malaysia, where you've got sort of two kilometer strips of people selling the same thing. Uh, I went uh, to Vietnam, uh, where again, at middle of the night, <laughs> there were these guys selling food, uh, but they covered this huge strip. So what leads to that kind of proliferation of people doing the same thing and still making a profit? Well, a huge quantity of customers mm. to start with. So they have to move. This yeah. one's full. You've got to go to the next one. 
I think we're creatures of habit too. You know, if you if you're def, I mean, as a visitor, you have to, you just it's potluck. I'll try that one and see if that works. But if you live there, you'll develop your habits. You'll find out which one actually does it for you. Yeah, and it's a bit like your local bar, I and guess. it becomes your local. And and uh, you know, the restaurant business re- relies on repeat clients, and that's why your reputation is more important than you trumpeting your adverts. Right. The best mix of music, Capital Dogu, I want to be, go all patriotic and national, and um, uh, but just to go back to, to the last segment where you said, you know, people... Uh, establish uh, a kind of affinity for a place and they go to. Again, you have this idea of, you know, travel through, journey through Africa. And when you get to Kenya, you've got to go and eat at A, B, C and D. The Traveler's Guide too. Uh, how, and it's a bit like the Michelin stamps, the five star, the three star. Have we arrived at that level of five star, 20 star, um, demarcation here in Kenya. Your life's incomplete unless you eat at. Uh, there are certain landmark places that you would want to eat at. I'm not going to go through them right now. Um, but there, are you asking if there's a unifying cuisine that you need to? Uh, No, I'm just asking how you'd interpret that because we're talking about the eating out culture. And Dugu, if there's there's a thing, if you're 60 years old, either biologically or in whatever shape or form, the reason we're having these conversations is very retrospective and say, where where are we going with this? And when we get to another segment, maybe the last one, I'll say that landmark institutions are closing down with alarming alacrity. If especially if you take the capital Nairobi as the sort of source of your um, academic investigation. So I'm saying when I was at school, when you were at school, pretty much at the same time, we were told Kahawa, coffee and uh, tourism were our staple. These were the money earning engines of the country. So there has to be an interrelationship between eating out and drawing in the tourists. Uh, so this is where I'm leading you. Okay, forget the Kenyans who can't afford it. It's not their birthday. What about getting everybody who uh, gets off at Jomo Kenyatta Airport to insist that they eat somewhere and make it known to them? Right. Um, let's take the first thing. Things are clo- uh, Places are closing down. Uh, there's no industry that is as volatile as the restaurant industry you do have to keep on reinventing yourself to stay up with uh, the demands of a a younger population who have much different uh, demands than we do as maybe senior citizens Um, and that would uh, just do stuff like you know louder music and more funky get away from all the traditional <laughs> bow tie nonsense and black black trousers white shirt which was the traditional 
you know, going back to our youth, that's what fancy restaurants look like. Now they're much more informal, much more relaxed, much more eclectic, you, you, unless you are an ethnic restaurant. But if you're just a, a modern restaurant, you have a, a range of cuisines, maybe with some French, Italian, Japanese, uh, as you were saying, Far Eastern dishes, uh, Indian dishes, and Kenyan dishes. I think you need to have Kenyan dishes on your menu if you want to attract, especially the travelers who want to uh, try something Kenyan. And of course, there's nothing more Kenyan than Yamachoma. So the good Yamachoma places do really, really well. At the coast, you do have a much more diverse uh, uh, range of opportunity with Swahili food that is more acceptable to the international traveling palate. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to demean any other kind of food, but it is uh, more complex, shall we say, that coconut cream, that turmeric, that tomato. It's very rich uh, and, uh, you know, and actually very exciting is the Swahili food. So, but yes, if you don't move with the times, you will fade out. And as we, as you've just said, a lot of the places that were the icons of our youth are no longer here, either because they were mama, papa operations and they've moved on or passed on, or... They just did the same old, same old and became out of fashion. Right. So that's the end of them. Did Has COVID um, helped us any? And I know the answer to that question, but I want you to give it a more informed professional. Has it knocked us for six? I'm surprised how many restaurants in Kenya survived COVID. I think uh, I'm really surprised because it, it, it's not that many. I've just been in Indonesia where they had very, very strict restrictions and you see so many shops are closed, so many restaurants are closed, so many nightclubs are closed. Whereas if you look around Nairobi, there wasn't a huge rate of attrition. First of all, I believe we handled COVID really well in this country. We didn't lock down and lock everybody up and it was very, very tough to survive. Uh, but it should the resourcefulness of Kenyans to survive, whether it was the employers or the employees. It was tough on everyone, but I think we bounced back pretty well. Can you tell me something, Dugu, about a, a client's preoccupations about national restrictions over, somebody mentioned in the Vox Pop, um, cleanliness, hygiene. Do you, as a player, are you aware that Big Brother is watching you in case you do something wrong? Or do does the eating out industry in Kenya generally uh, operate with complete impunity? You can do what you like. You can cook with muddy water. You can, you know, sprinkle some petrol to make your meat more tender <laughs> uh, and so on and so forth. Well, at the upper scale, obviously you can't, and you are regulated, and, and we're self-regulated. Uh, we uh, um, adopt uh, worldwide best practices, and you've got to be very careful that you don't poison your clientele, 
because we live in a much more litigious society now and uh, and it would be really bad social media and very embarrassing. Uh, the same um, regulations obviously don't apply to the kiosks and sometimes you feel in our industry you're being harassed unnecessarily uh, when you see different uh, regulations applied to different products. And I guess that's understandable because uh, regulation comes with its costs. And, uh, you know, maintaining uh, maintaining uh, records on where you source food, how you, sh how you store it, uh, proper storage facilities, temperatures. These are things that we really adhere to and, and do everything possible to avoid. I'm going to stick with this word regulations and legislation a bit more and, and do forgive the, 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 the one ancient questions which can appear really sort of uninformed. And um, But I seem to remember, Ndugu, that, well, put it this way, we've got this country with all these animals running around and uh, somehow there was a time when we could eat them, as we had always done traditionally, uh, and then we couldn't eat them. And then if I read the paper yesterday, uh, we said, oh, um, we can't eat donkeys. Uh, and then some government official says, uh, no, let's all uh, eat donkeys because if we, if, we, if, we, if we stop this trade, then we're going to uh, put a lot of youth out of jobs. And you sort of think to yourself, hang on a minute, how many youth are going to be spending all day sort of chopping up donkeys and, you know, sort of paying school fees for their kids? So somebody's lying somewhere. Is there a sort of uh, uh, political mafia uh, legislating against what and what to do with produce? That's a bit of an unfair question. Let me let me do it again. <laughs> let me do it again. What happened to the ability to eat wildebeest and crocodile and all the things that we sort of, uh, at a certain uh, segment of society, went out to eat when we are in Africa, Africa, home of the animal? Now, traditionally, did Kenyans eat the wildlife? Some of it, yes. Some of it, good. Yeah, yes. Okay. And I'm sure but, if you're if you're reading about uh, Mdugu, if you anecdotes about going along the the Congo River and everything, uh, you know there are monkeys and uh, Malawi again in my travels, people would come out on the side of the street with rodents, huge rats, which are a national delicacy. Yes, they did. Good. Okay. Um, so in the 80s, uh, there was a move towards uh, game ranching which uh, had huge benefits, actually, uh, in that the meat was healthy, the animals were soft on the environment, um, they were very low-fat, and that's why they were healthy. They were more drought-resistant than domesticated animals, and they gave the opportunity, especially of our tourists, to come to Africa and, as you said, taste the different types of meat available, whether it was crocodile or warthog or zebra or buffaloes or something. There were two issues there. First, the, um, the conservationists who were confused with animal rights, and those were the people who thought that Bambi shouldn't die for any reason. 
And these tended to be people who were not involved in Africa at all. They were little old ladies raising money in America predominantly and saying, we must save the herds of, uh, of Africa. We must, definitely, that's fine. There was the other side that said, by encouraging people to eat wildlife, we're encouraging poaching because that's an easy route to market. If you manage to whack an impala, you'll be able to sell it under the guise that I raised this impala and therefore it's, it's my money. Um, I think that's wrong, personally, and uh, I've been involved in South Africa a bit, and I've seen that over the last century there are more animals in South Africa today than there were 100 years ago. You can't say the same in Kenya. In Kenya, we've got about 20% of what we had 100 years ago. Why are there more in South Africa? There are 13,000 licensed game farms, and they raise wild animals. Well, not wild animals. They domesticate wild animals like we do, goats, sheep, pigs, cows, for the table. And it does need some uh, control to stop rampant poaching. But at the end of the day, I believe there'll be more animals on Kenyan soil if they have a value. Right now, they do not have a value. If you've got a shamba near a game park or anywhere where there's wild animals, they are a pest and you want to get rid of them. Right, so could you go further and, and suggest a solution? Because again, we see again what does the what does the one ancient see they see sort of the idea of fencing them all off a corridor with an electric fence where animals can roam freely and then we're being told that you know migration the wildebeest that went to tanzania might not come back this year because there's a housing estate on their chosen path which they sniff so we're basically saying let's let's be uh, uh, let's be apocalyptic and saying um there will be eventually less food for all in Africa by the year, whatever year politicians like to place. We're heading down a slippery slope and we're all going to sleep hungry. I think there's two options here. And unfortunately, one is a financial option is that, yes, if you're going to keep wildlife and rear wildlife, not just keep what you've got, but rear it, you do need fencing. You do need animal husbandry. And you need better fencing than you do with sheep and cows because these things can jump. And they can jump very tall fences. Uh, on the other side, we do need to keep the open spaces for the migration. It is one of the wonders of the world, especially the Mara migration. Um, and, but there is a shortage of protein in Africa. And anyone who can grab a wildebeest that's happening to migrate will probably do so. Uh, how do we try and deal with that? Is we try and create more protein available. Well, Ndugu, I'm going to do a bit of editing for you. I think if we could go back, um, uh, uh, you said uh, little old ladies. Um, Maybe we better also add little old men. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they were laughing, but time for a break. Thank you. Capital FM.
Ndugu, it's uh, 19 hours 16. The commonplaces that time flies. We've only got about um, 30 minutes of chat left. I'd like to engage you on the future, uh, the future and messages to the young. Every single conversation that we've had in this particular series and others points to the idea of the obviously eating out. Uh, eating out's got it, eating out presumes that there's going to be food to eat, that there's nice stuff that you can cull to cook, etc., etc. But we always hear about the environment, the degradation of the environment, climate change. Uh, I wonder whether, as a pivotal and guiding player, you're beginning to think in visionary terms about these threats to the way we've always lived the environment and climate change and if it's got anything to do with what you do or you'll just can i be a climate denier i'm not yes. but <laughs> you could have tried but yes listen sustainability is a, a very very important part of uh, of life now you know we are we have dwindling resources and there are all kinds of resources and we do have to look into more sustainable living. Um, and that needs to be right from the top of the food chain to the bottom. So we've got to protect what we have. And, uh, you know, there's a, a destruction of our water towers. Without water, we are in deep problems. I nearly used another word. Yes. But, um, and so, you know, we start with that. And... Um, and then, you know, we do need to grow more food, more sustainably. Um, there's a case for GMO foods. I'm not going to go into that. But there are uh, different methods of growing food that can help sustain us. And one of them, of course, is, is urban gardening, which we've seen a bit of, you know, learning to feed your family out of a, a plot about the size of this table is possible to do with the right resources um, or with the right knowledge anyway. Uh, I'm very, very concerned about the state of the oceans. They are being plundered. Um, fish farming has taken off in a big way, but comes with its own problems. Success comes with its problems. We've seen in Lake Victoria recently, overstocking of fish takes out all the oxygen, a lot of the bio the waste actually ends up poisoning the fish. You've seen this in um, salmon farms in Norway and Scotland. That and everything that if you overcrowd everything, the quality does go down. Um, but you know, in the restaurant business, we are looking for sustainability. We're trying. Uh, it's it's hard in the seafood business where you do not have seafood farms in Kenya and you have to rely on imported seafood if you really want to be totally sustainable. But we are seeing a move to more farming on the Kenya coast. Um, and obviously we've seen a lot of farming, fish farming in Lake Victoria. But Ndugu, let's go back again to this idea of if you're aware of a major problem looming you, in order to run your business, your industry, need to ensure that there's going to be. If I if I turn up at one of your condits and say, uh, I would love uh, uh, some seafood or 
leg of nail perch or tilapia. <laughs> oh, no, no, didn't have any legs. Oh, yeah, but you know what I mean. Uh, the, 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 the thing is, if it's not going to be there, why aren't you? Are you part of a conscious lobby group? I'm, I'm talking now about a relationship with government because you can live life in your little neighborhood. The junk's piling up. There's no water, but you still live there because that's your home, that's your flat. And you're not interested in the sewerage. But it seems to me that for the, with these very thin margins of which you spoke, that you have an interest in knowing where your fish is going to come from and where your tomatoes are going to come from and where your onions are going to come from so that you can produce the marvelous cuisine for which you're justly famed. Are you doing that? Uh, on some levels, yes. Um, for instance, we've championed tree planting for years and have pl planted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of trees uh, over the period because it goes back to water is our basic for life. Without uh, proper water, without retention of water, uh, that to me is the most critical thing and it could cause a huge disruption in uh, our society if we start running out of water, which we're already beginning to do. In terms of pollution, uh, I think uh, we make our noises heard, but in, in terms of sewage and solid waste disposal, it is a bigger problem than we in the private sector can deal with. And the public sector has not seen it necessary to actually tackle solid waste and uh, um, but, you know, then again, we have done something about plastic, but the ocean is still full of plastic waste. But is, I'm trying to, the small print is that are you consciously going for a dialogue and interrelationship with government? Would you have said in the last year that you sat down with the Minister for Agriculture and said, look, matey, this is what needs to be done? Or do you just wait for some... Uh, uh, pleasing the populist announcement you know from now on all maize will be free and you say we'll go along with that placards <laughs> demonstrations uh, none of that uh, interesting you should put me on the spot yes i spoke to the governor of Mombasa about it last week about yes. cleaning up the ocean and i'm meeting someone actually tomorrow to to do something about that but it's a major major problem it needs a, a lot of public goodwill so yes, oh, I think Ndugu, I'm not going to go for that one. Everybody, <laughs> everybody says, uh, everybody, everybody, bar none, says it needs a lot of public goodwill. Now, part of the agenda of a conversation such as ours, because we're not talking about who's going to be the next president in the next five years, we're asking, are we going to be here in the next five years? These are the conversations that we're having. What do, what do you mean when you say public will? What should I do? What do we, I'm a member of the public. I'm citizen number. 47 million and two what should i be doing then we should all get together and say no to plastic no to garbage disposal into the ocean but you have to give them an alternative they, you know the the people who can't afford garbage disposal will just dump it wherever they can because they're not going to be able to afford to pay for it so we have to have those services that work or create services that are self-financing Okay, um, I, I put words into... What do you think um, the future of eating out might be? Uh, I hear about friends who go to restaurants where they're served by robots. Some sort of, you know, metallic thing comes and says, what would you like, sir? Writes it on a bit of paper. There's no employment there. Are we 
going to be in a position where we're aping the West as ever, or we're going to come out with this wonderful uh, stock phrase, African solutions for African problems, where we don't allow machines anywhere near our sites. With a, with a correlation, you see the thing in sort of Kericho with the T, people are going up in arms because basically machines can um, pick the T and people are unhappy about that because they've got no jobs. That is inevitable where you've got a, a cost implication and you're seeing it in restaurants, technology taking over. I mean, here we are surrounded with computers, so we are in restaurants because they can do jobs quicker than humans can and your labor costs. And does, and does this play into the idea that um, um, a quarter of the world's population in the year 20, uh, whatever 2050 is going to be in Africa, they're all young, they're all vibrant, so you're saying we're going to be the most populous mob of humanity on the earth and machines will be doing all the work, including in the hospitality and eating out industry. Fortunately, the hospitality industry is a huge employer and I believe that we'll continue to be so. And uh, certainly in our business, we keep on employing more rather than less people, which is also a good sign. Uh, no, I think the social interaction, going back to why do we eat out, is that social interaction. And that is uh, one of Kenya's great fortes, is the social interaction with the hospitality professionals is of world class. People remark on it all the time. Ndugu, uh, name and title, please. Who are you? My name's Martin Dunford. Uh, I run the Tamarind Group, which consists of the carnivore, Tamarind restaurants, the hotel, uh, Kengeles, roast, and uh, there you go. Right. I think it's like having a, uh, a gold-winning child amongst um, several. Uh, the carnivore is the word that sticks out to me and I'm sure to our listeners. Um, we've got um, three minutes Given what we've discussed, what do you think from your the carnival starting in the 1980s, early 1980s, what has been the secret of your success? Or is it a bit like Kentucky Fried Chicken, you're not going to tell us what the recipe is? It has to be what I mentioned before, consistency, hospitality. It's an experience. It's not just coming to eat at Nyama. It's a, it's a big social experience. It's theatrical you know, we designed it to have the flames and the swords and the sharp knives and the hot plates. And mm. yes, you can copy all of that. Yes. But can you keep up? And you've exported it indeed to South Africa. And we did export it to South Africa. Yes. But it's the people behind it. It's the constant rejigging and just making sure everybody's having a good time who works there because that will then reflect in the product. So you, if I were to do my research, you you go to great lengths to make your employees, quote-unquote, happy. Absolutely. It's key to what we do. We have fun when we work. We work really hard, yes. but we try and strip away all the levels of authority and bureaucratic nonsense that creeps into business and make sure that we're just all doing our different parts. Right. Uh, we normally, because this is a um, sort of end on the note, that we recognize that this is a young audience of listeners with a, a few wazes dropped in uh, what about the encouragement uh, for somebody to follow in your footsteps a young person 
what are the delights of being in the eating out industry? Uh, the delights are many. Um, never having a dull day. Every day is completely different. Um, a lot of pro- uh, possibilities for growth. Uh, and we've seen this uh, advance a lot in the last 20, 30 years that chefs in restaurants, in hotels, are extremely well rewarded. Before it was almost, you know, somebody's houseboy cooking or something and getting nothing for it. But now these are serious industry professionals who can hold their own with anyone in the world. And so the opportunities are there. The social interactions are amazing. And uh, you can have some fun. Uh what do you have to study? Because uh, now, again, it's a pointed question because some people say, you know, I, d- I read classics at Cambridge and now I'm running a you know, nuclear power plant. Can you get away with studying anything and ending up in the uh, eating out industry? You certainly can. And again, it's that. Uh, so what are the qualities that you as an employer, if I came, not that you give me a job, what would you like to see in me as qualities that you saw as promising? I'd like to see enthusiasm. I'd like to see energy. I would like to see an outgoing person who can be part of a team. Ah, well, perhaps I could get a job then. I think I'll try. But it's just just past 19 hours, 30 minutes and 7 seconds. East African time, and it's time to stop. Uh, Do continue to give us feedback and hopefully positive feedback and reassuring feedback on the Twitter handle at Capital FM Kenya or drop us a text or WhatsApp message on 0701-984-984. I've been talking to Martin Dunford, CEO of the Tamarind Restaurants and the Carnivore, the world-famous Carnivore, and you've been listening to John Sibiokumo on Wednesday. Thank you for being either a loyal listener or a new listener. Very much obliged. Until next time. Thank you, my limo.